Greg Rubel of Living Streams Community Church in McCordsville, Indiana. We want to thank you for your interest in God's Word and this message. We pray that God puts it into your heart. As you grab your Bibles this morning and turn to Psalm 2. I wonder if anyone can guess what passage of Scripture we might read together from the screen this morning. And if you guess Jeremiah 15:16, you are partially correct. <laughs> Let's read a couple of these out loud uh, together. Jeremiah 15:16, your words were found and I ate them. Your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. And Jeremiah 23:29, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we ask, would you once again stir us to find, eat, and delight in your word this morning? And we ask, would... You have your word come like a fire and burn away the worthless things that keep us from seeing you and keep us from hearing you. And would your word come like a hammer today and break the stone of our minds and our hearts? And we ask it all in the powerful and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this morning, once again, I have the privilege to... uh, kick off a new sermon series. I really do enjoy getting to do that. I'm not sure even Greg realizes how many times I've got the privilege to do that. I love love being able to do that. This morning, um, we get to kick off a new series of Drawing Near to Jesus, because over the next few weeks as we head into Easter, uh, we'll be looking at how to draw near to Jesus as a servant, how to draw near to Jesus as a lamb, how to draw near to Jesus as victor, and how to draw near to Jesus as shepherd. But first this morning, we get to look at how to draw near to Jesus as a lion or king. I couldn't get the lion king thing to work throughout the entire message without us all thinking about Disney movies. So just drawing near to Jesus as king, if you would, this morning. Let's begin by reading the first four verses of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst our bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
Well, in these first four verses, we see that in order to draw near to Jesus as king, we need to recognize his rule. Let's take note, first of all, of the words and phrases used in these four verses. Rage, plot, in vain, set against, burst, cast, bonds, cords, laughs, and derision. There are many descriptive and emotive words and phrases used here. And that indicates that this is no passive passage. There's much going on. And I thought about these verses and if I thought, and I thought, how would we direct an artist to paint a mural uh, of this passage, these, these verses? And I couldn't help but think just to say, you know, paint chaos. Paint futile, impotent chaos. Because the image here is clear enough. Here we have a league of global nations that have arrayed themselves against God. They have pulled their resources. They have plotted and schemed. They're strategizing and leveraging their power against a common target. They are of one mind, or at at least uh, they are united with the same end goal here. Because no doubt each leader has their own agendas in mind as well. But for this cause, they are united. Let us be free of God. But here in this passage, those who set themselves against him, you notice that they actually recognize his rule. They know he's there, and they acknowledge him. And they make the mistake in thinking that he's overthrowable, that his power is limited, that his will is weak, that his sovereign authority has bounds, which they can break through. But to what effect do they plot? To what effect do they rage? What do they hope to accomplish? Well, in this passage, we can see that it's all futile and it's all in vain. It's impotent. Does God appear threatened by this array of power, wealth, and of global unity? Let's see. He laughs. <laughs> I have a good friend. Uh, he's been in martial arts and, and wrestling his whole life, and he's just, he's a great guy, tender hearted guy, but not someone you want to mess with. And when I see him, uh, people messing with him at work or whatever, you know what he does? He laughs. <laughs> he just chuckles at them. This is no nervous laughter from God here. This is a picture of a rightful true king, very, very confident in his rule. And not just confident in his power and might, though they are great. He's also confident in the rightness of his rule. And anyone who has had to stand up to a bully or someone who was in the wrong, even though you might have been smaller and weaker, you know what the treasure of that is to stand up for something that's right. This is a unique treasure. He is not concerned. So while God is certainly challenged in this picture, in a practical sense, he's unchallengeable. The so-called challenges to God's authority, rule, and reign have absolutely no effect. What's he doing here in this picture, in this passage? Well, he's not standing He's not pacing the floor. 
He's not laying diagonally across his bed, fretting in a fit. He's not wringing his hands. He's not worrying or concerned in the least. In fact, he sits and he laughs. In Isaiah 40, 22, it says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. So he is supremely confident in his throne. There's going to be no recall. There's not going to be a usurpation of his of his throne. The just and right king reigns, has always reigned, and will always reign, and we need no other. Truly, in looking at the universe plainly, we see that it ought to be simple for us, really, to recognize his rule. You know, but sometimes we don't array ourselves and, and, and go up against God the way the picture here is in these first few verses. Sometimes we actually try to pretend that he isn't there. Intellectual tomfoolery. And from individual hearts and minds to schoolhouses and other public property to entire nations, philosophies, laws, rules, conventions, and systems of thought all try in vain to pretend that he isn't there and that he isn't on the throne. But pretending doesn't make him go away. It's child's play to pretend something that's there isn't there or someone. So you uh, have you all heard the phrase elephant in the room? It's a phrase that we use sometimes when something that everyone is fully aware of but no one's talking about. Usually there's something you know, bad or nefarious about it. You know, a few years ago, we were having a conversation in my kitchen, and I had mentioned something like, "Yeah, I have no eyebrows." And Alyssa said, "You know." <laughs> like, yeah, I'm well aware that it looks like I have no eyebrows, but you know, there was an elephant in the room there that we hadn't talked about yet, and apparently for years she had been like, "He doesn't have any eyebrows. I wonder if he knows." <laughs> There was an elephant in the room. Now, most of the time when we're talking about elephant in the room, it's something more substantial than eyebrows. But that's what it's like when people try to pretend that God isn't there or that we can't know if he's there or not. Because not only is he there, you know, and he's not just sitting there waiting for us to notice him. Say, oh, hi there. Hello. He's reigning. He's being worshipped constantly, rightfully. All of this forevermore is a worthy response, and a rightful response to who he truly is. But in this passage again, those that are setting themselves against him, they recognize his rule. They're not pretending he isn't there. They really want to conquer him. They really want to overthrow him. They want to set themselves above him, if at all possible. They're not pretending he isn't there. They make the mistake of thinking he's overthrowable, that his power is limited, his will is weak, and his sovereign authority has bounds. But they're so wrong. You know, when we use the word king, we often follow it with the word of. Because all kings are kings of something. There's king of rock and roll. There's king of beers. There's king of pop. There's king of England. Or we'll proceed king with another descriptive word that is limiting the, uh, the reign of this king. Like smoothie king and burger king and rural king and so on. 
But only Jesus is simply king. You know, even monarchs and rulers of nations have limited sovereignty and rule. The greatest conquerors, the greatest, most powerful emperors this world has ever seen, has, they've had limited power. They've had limited rule and authority. They've had limited dominion and reach of their kingdoms or empires. But Jesus, he's simply king, king of kings, supremely above all kings. But he is simply king because he's king of all. What is God's dominion and kingdom anyway? In the interest of time, I cut out what I would normally do and just just throw in a, a slew of scriptures which come to mind. I took a personality test a few years ago, and my number one strength in this strength finder system was connectedness. Living with that as a strength is difficult because I find connections with everything. And my temptation is to fill every sermon with dozens and dozens of scriptures which will back up basically every sentence that I feel led to write. But God's dominion and kingdom... Is everything. What is his reach? Simply put, it's it's everything. It's all that is. Everything material and immaterial in existence is his. He created it. He owns it. He has authority of it. For from him and through him and to him are all things. In the beginning, God created. And so on and so forth. All that is came from him and is his to possess and rule as he pleases. And we can look at a couple of people in the Old Testament that wrestled with recognizing this truth and wrestled with recognizing his rule. In Exodus 5, Moses tells Pharaoh that the Lord, when we see the word in our Bibles, the Lord, where Lord is in all capitals, that's actually a replacement for his name. His personal name, which we can pronounce as Yahweh, okay? So there's the Lord in all caps, and then sometimes there's the Lord, and it's just capital L and then lowercase O-R-D. Anytime we see the Lord in all caps, you can replace it with Yahweh as a personal name for God, okay? And it's super helpful in this. This is where the real power um, comes out, especially in in these um, many chapters in Exodus for me. And when you put his personal name in there... When Moses tells Pharaoh that Yahweh says to let his people go, Pharaoh tried to play dumb, not just in the first discussion with Moses and Aaron there, but throughout the entire series of plagues. So he replied to Moses and really indirectly to God here when he said, Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. But you know, Pharaoh learned soon enough and at the cost of a great many lives, that his own rule and authority were not sovereign over all. But there was one king who did reign over all. You know, Pharaoh eventually recognized his rule, but at a tremendous cost. Nebuchadnezzar experienced something similar in Daniel 4. You know, in a moment, in a brief moment, his mouth revealed what must have been hiding in his heart for quite some time. And Daniel 4 says, And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. 
The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. In Nebuchadnezzar's case, after a time had passed, he rightly proclaimed praises to God, who alone deserves the honor that he was trying to keep for himself. But he eventually came to recognize his rule, and he didn't regret it. So here in Psalm 2, at the beginning we see many who recognize his rule and yet array themselves against him. So if we were to draw near to Jesus as king, we know minimally we have to start there. We have to minimally recognize his rule. But what else does God have to say to us in this short psalm? Let's read verses 5 through 9. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, this is David speaking, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So in these verses we see that we need uh, to draw near to Jesus, we need to become his belonging. However, before we go any further, something uh, doctrinally important needs to be said. Technically, and in in most um, every important way, everything is already God's. He made it from nothing, and so it just follows that it all belongs to him as creator and maker. But for this point, in these verses, we're not talking about the kind of belonging relationship that a clay or a pot has to its potter. This passage isn't talking about a maker and creator, although those are both true. This passage is talking more about the kind of belonging that comes by a purchaser. Okay? Here in these verses, God talks about a heritage and that he has set his own king on Zion. Now, this passage is immediately true about David, who is actually writing the psalm, or it's written about him. And what a triumph that is, that Israel would be its own nation and that they would have their own king, especially after the disaster that Saul was as Israel's first king. But here in Psalm 2, this heritage, throne, and kingdom that God is talking about goes far beyond David and Israel. Because beyond the proclamation of these verses, there is a prophecy in the future of Jesus' rule And there's also the manifold promise, the many-parted promise in the past back to Genesis that God made to Abraham. So the kingdom that God means here is a spiritual kingdom and a people. The king and throne he establishes through Jesus is an everlasting one. And that kingdom comes through the purchase of a people in all nations in all tribes, from all tongues, across all the millennia, through the sacrifice of Jesus' very own life. You know, the Heidelberg Catechism was written over 450 years ago, 
And you know what the very first teaching is in that catechism? Question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And then the answer is given, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. Now, there's a newer catechism called the New City Catechism. It's five or six years old, and it puts it a little simpler. Question one, what is our only hope in life and death? The answer is that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Both of these catechisms consider it important enough to say first and foremost that we are not our own, that we belong to Christ. And in Psalm 2.8 here, God the Father makes all things, and more importantly, all people, Jesus' inheritance through this psalm as a prophecy. But to draw near to Jesus as king, this kind of belonging must go beyond mere possession and ownership. He made us, and therefore we are his. We need to go beyond that. And we need to find the kind of belonging that comes through the purchase of Jesus' own life. Beyond merely recognizing his rule to belonging to him by being purchased by him and willfully placing ourselves under his rule. Here's an illustration. A parent goes out to buy a board game to play with their child. The parent works diligently at a job to earn money that paid for the car, paid for the gas, paid for the new battery and tires that had to be put on recently, paid for the game itself, paid for the sales tax on the game, paid for the table that the game was played on, the snacks that were eaten during the time of the game, and so on. You get the idea. And at the end of the game, when it's time to put it all up because it's time for bed, the child wants to continue playing with the game and holds their token in their hand and says, what? Mine. (laughs) Mine. So in a sense, yeah, it's the child's. It was a child's token that marked their place in the game during the game. And yes, the child still had possession of that piece in the sense that it was in their tiny little clutched shaking fist. But in no way that any rational adult could that piece be considered the child's game piece. So we have in here a possession, ownership, and rule in play. And the parent could easily take the piece by force and put it in a box and send the kid to to bed. But more ideally, the parent could work with the child in such a way that the child recognizes that the parent is not only in charge, but that the parent rules lovingly and justly. And that the piece will be available again later on to play with when the time is right. When the child willfully and joyfully surrenders the peace, trusting mom or dad that they'll get to play with it again later, we have a powerful transformation of a tiny little heart. And though there was never any real question about possession or rule, it's now plainly, plainly and wonderfully settled. This is what we mean by become his belonging. Verses 8 and 9 give us a choice. And... 
It's a hard choice. Those aren't easy words when we, we depict Christ with a scepter in his hand and ready to dash pieces of pottery into pieces. But he gives us a choice. Become Jesus' belonging and inheritance through the loving and sacrificial purchase of his own life, or we can take our place with the array of peoples raging and plotting against him in vain at great cost and growing cost, just like Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar did among countless miserable others. How do we become his belonging? What do we mean by that? Sing a wonderful work, uh, song this morning in anticipation of Easter. How do we become his belonging? There is no ceremony on our part that causes this transaction, okay? All it takes is faith. Something that we can, uh, that can happen in our hearts really at any time, wherever we are. It can happen right now. By faith we believe that Jesus is the Son of God and yet very God himself. By faith we believe that he came to save us from the sin that separates us from him by purchasing our pardon through the cost of his own blood. And by faith we place our trust in Jesus to save us. And it's this faith transaction alone by which we become his belonging. So we need to draw near to Jesus as king. And if we're going to do that, we recognize his rule and we become his belonging. And finally, we must affect our affections. Let's look at the last three verses of this psalm. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, here at the end of the passage is a seemingly strange expression. Kiss the son. And yet it is, it is vital to the entire psalm. The sense here in these three verses is this. It's a compassionate and diplomatic plea from a person in the true power position and with true authority to those who aren't. The plea is not just for mere subservience here. This isn't a call that God simply wants to break our will or for us to bend our knee or bow our backs under his authority and rule. It's a plea for heartfelt, affectionate, joyful service to the one true king of the universe. Look at those bold and serious and yet warm words. Be wise and be warned. There's a call there to serve with fear and to rejoice with trembling. And these uh, these words in this passage remind me of, of a couple other verses, um, a pair of my favorite verses in, in the Bible. There at the end of Hebrews 12, it says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So the call here isn't to come under God's authority out of terror, but out of delight. And that may seem like a tall order. 
Because coming to delight in God is not a straightforward thing for most people. It isn't something that you just decide to do one morning over coffee. You know what? I think I'm just going to authentically love and delight and treasure Jesus from here on out through the rest of my life. You know, I hope that happens for you, every one of you, but it's not likely. It's not that straightforward. It's not common because you cannot manufacture delight in Jesus. If you've been through seasons of life and maybe you're in one now where you struggle to stir up true affections for God, then this point may be like rubbing salt in a wound. Maybe you feel like you have given him your devotion for a time, but he still seems distant. If that's the case, I ask that you go back and listen to the message from Thanksgiving weekend that Sunday. It's available on the website. But for all of us, there's something important to realize when it comes to our affections for God in this If you're willing, it would be a great time to pay attention. A key to finding true delight in God, for treasuring Him truly, and that is unlocking affections for Jesus. There's a key, and the key is gratitude. If you felt the weight of your own sin, if you've come face to face with the wickedness or potential for it in your own heart, if you've caught a glimpse of the depths of your own depravity, if you've realized that you're unable to save yourself or even stop yourself from sinning for a season, if you've come to see a desperate need to be saved by someone or something outside of yourself, if you've experienced the forgiveness, the complete forgiveness of all your sin, if you've ever sang these words with authenticity, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. If some or most of these things are true for you this morning, then surely you will have experienced minimally gratitude for Jesus having saved you, though a wretch you once were. And that right there is where powerful and authentic affection for Jesus begin. Deep Humble gratitude, sincere, broken thankfulness. But if you're here today and you still hold out hope that you can manage the morality level in your own life and that the true hope for you is found somewhere within you or somewhere out there in a book or in a pharmacy or on a magazine stand or in a website or through some mystic experience then I realize this message is falling on deaf ears because you cannot manufacture affections for Jesus, nor can you truly draw near to him as king without those affections. If you want to foster true affection for the one true king of the universe, the one who made you and loved you with his own life and death, even while your heart was bent on sinning, if you want to come to a place to delight and rejoice in Jesus, it starts with gratitude, gratitude for who he is, And all that he's done for you personally, but also for the entire world. A powerful illustration of this kind of transforming gratitude can be found in Luke chapter 7. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he, Jesus, went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, 
a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is for or who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Jesus must have heard it because he answered to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon, you can imagine him being startled. Uh, say it, teacher. Jesus goes on to tell a story. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he's not talking to Simon, he's got his face on the woman who's worshiping him at his feet. He turns to the woman and he says to Simon, you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. He who is forgiven much loves much. That's gratitude. And he who has forgiven little loves little. You know, what he means by that is those that consider their sins few, small, insignificant, won't recognize the immense need and won't recognize the true value of Jesus' sacrifice for them. And therefore, of course, there will be little sense, maybe even no sense of gratitude there. Nor will there be any true affection for Jesus either. And to be sure, these aren't mere affections or empty emotions we're talking about. We're talking about truly transforming what we treasure and delight in, and what gives us true joy and motivation. Through the power of His Holy Spirit, this is possible. But the key is gratitude for what Jesus has done. Once we're there, the Spirit can lead us to willfully and wonderfully kiss the Son, to pledge our life's allegiance and to give what all might be considered ours, in our little fiefdoms, we give over to him, to his true and lasting kingdom. But to find, to find the son of the throne of the universe, we must first find him on the cross of Calvary. And there we see a, simp, a seemingly crippled beggar on the cross. At best, we might see a, simp, a seemingly defeated and undignified dignitary. Because it is there on that bloody cross, on the battlefield, where the war was waged for his everlasting kingdom. And though he died a gruesome and vulgar death on the cross, he now sits 
in the position of the greatest power and authority of the universe. And he rules justly. You know, there's no use, though, in coming to Jesus merely because he is king and has authority and power. To those people, he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. If he has our affections, we will embrace the bloody, broken Jesus of the cross and not just reach for his throne, scepter, his crown, his robe. Worship team, can you come on back up? As we look to wrap up this morning, try to find a way to personalize these and take these three points home with us and we'll give this a go. The progression for us through this passage looks something like this. We first recognize his rule and we say, I'm no king. He is the king. The second thing we do is we become his belonging where we say, he is my king and I am his And the third is that we affect our affections. This is to say that he is my treasure and I delight in him. So as we do this, as we take in this passage and and apply it through his power to our life, what awaits us? So what's the result of doing this? And the psalm answers that for us very simply as it closes. You can see it right there in your own Bible. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed. So you have an opportunity this morning. Would you lean in and draw near to Jesus as King? Will you be blessed by taking your refuge in Him? He receives all who come to Him because it is Him who does the calling and drawing to Himself in the first place. So if you're here this morning and you're sensing a call to draw near Him, that's Him calling. Answer. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, how it fills my heart, how it revives my heart when you are not made big, but when you are shown as big because you are big. Father, that revives me, that heals me when I see you in your majesty, and I see you in your greatness. So, Father, for each of us today, would you, would you help us to see the reality of your rule? Father, help us to be uh, grasped, um, taken hold of um, by that. And that, Father, that there would be a hunger to belong to you, that you would come and that you would warm us up, that you would affect uh, our affections for you. And we just state uh, here and now that we recognize that that will be you, that will be your Holy Spirit that is working that power uh, within us. And so, Father, we thank you that we, we can come to you, that we can call out to you and that you will answer us. Uh, you'll come and you'll help us uh, with wherever we're at in our life. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.